You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. I was praying about crossroads, and I think that theology and reality are constantly our crossroads, aren't they? If you've grown up in the church or if you're a student of God's word, you're assembling for yourselves this foundation of theological understanding, and then you wake up on Monday and reality hits you. And this constant tension between theology and reality seems to be our lot in life. And if you were part of the 42 who were participating in the fast track for biblical soul care, you know that biblical soul care is a a great resource to meet us in that crossroads of theology and reality. So I'm grateful for the team that has been working so hard to prepare that amazing training. And then All right, this is kind of weak sauce, but I experienced the crossroads between theology and reality yesterday because all of my teams lost. I mean, you know, the the Houston Texans, for the Chiefs, lost. Uh, We have friends that like Duke, and so because of our love for our friends, we rooted for them and they lost. We have a staff member who I continually pray for, loves the Green Bay Packers. And his team lost. And then our beloved Jayhawks, who are not supposed to ever lose, especially in West. I digress, but they lost. So I woke up this morning with this this weight and almost this anticipation of what's going to happen tonight, although I'm praying against that. I, I, I was felt like this weight. And then I listened to the radio coming in, and Chuck Swindoll was preaching from the Word and reminding me about theology. And I was reminded of the fact that theology is substance. Reality is so oftentimes Habel, isn't it? And we're going to be reminded of that in our passage that we study. I invite you to turn to Revelation 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Revelation 20 on page 1040 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. I'm going to read Revelation 20 and then set it up and then we'll unpack this chapter together. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You know, recently, my wife and I were watching a movie that was about the 1996 climbing season of Mount Everest, which, by the way, I think it's fascinating, the odd fascination a man who is so deathly afraid of heights has with Mount Everest. But I digress. This movie was fascinating. It was interesting to see the, the humans that were involved and the backstories and the equipment and all the planning that went into preparing for that assault. But as I was watching this movie and the amazing cinematography, there, there was something that I think the director was doing for the audience that I think ties into Revelation 20. Throughout the movie, the different scenes often had this as the background. That is the summit of Mount Everest, the tallest point measured from sea level here on earth. And whether it was the base camp and the assembling of the resources, whether it was the uh, runs through the ice falls, whether it was the uh, different ascent camps all the way up to the summit, or the day before the, the final ascent, the scene always had this summit looming in the background. It was overshadowing the climbers. It was motivating the climbers. In fact, it was impacting all of the decisions throughout that, those weeks of preparation for the climbers. And I think sometimes Revelation 20 becomes that summit for Revelation. In fact, there are three systems of interpreting the book of Revelation that actually have millennium or 1,000 years in their very name. There are the post-millennial views, the pre-millennial views, the amillennial views, and within those titles is the very reality that the chapter 20 understanding influences the rest of the book. But I had to ask my question as I was preparing for this series months and months ago, and that was this. Should we take a different approach to Revelation 20 than we do the previous 19 chapters? 
The same question had to be asked of the book of Revelation. Should we take a different approach in interpreting the book of Revelation than we do the rest of the 65 books of the Bible? And the answer to that question, I believe, is no. We must approach Revelation 20 with the same tools of interpretation we have used for the previous 19 chapters, and we must interpret the book of Revelation with the same tools and rules that we interpret the other 65 books. And when we do, I believe that this is one final replay and not a window into some future kingdom that will last for a thousand years. Now let me hasten to say that I have studied this enough, not just this last week, but for months, that I have great respect and understand why people are post-millennials. I have great respect and understand why people land in the premillennial camp. I have great respect and understand why people consider themselves amillennials. You will see where I land on this chapter by the way that I unpack it. And my goal this morning is not to convince everyone to see it my way. My goal this morning is to present to you the position that for me answers the most questions, not all of the questions, but answers the most questions, and that stands up with an interpretive approach to Scripture that is consistent from Genesis to Revelation and consistent with the first 19 chapters of Revelation. The big idea, I believe, of Revelation 20 is in your notes, and that is the scene of 1,000 years, or referred to as the millennium, provides one last replay to both encourage and build our anticipation. We are going to see four groups and what they are doing now and what we can anticipate they'll do in the future that I, I hope will help us clearly understand what I believe the Holy Spirit through John intends for us to understand. I'll also manage expectations and share with you that points one and two are the lion's share of this sermon. Points three and four will be rapid succession. The first group that verses one through three provide for us is the group of the divine, and it provides for us a window into what the divine are doing. Now, I know divine typically refers to God himself, but by divine, and if you look at the English definition, the divine literally refers to the unseen realm, the transcendent beings that are godlike, with God himself being the ultimate divine. If you want to study that more, you can grab Michael, the late Professor Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. But when I'm referring to the divine, I'm referring to the divine, the transcendent beings that are revealed in these verses. We're introduced to them, and I'll go in this order, first by looking at verse 1 at God. It says that the angel came from heaven. And so this is an angel, this is a divine being who's authorized by God himself, has the message and the authority for the activities that John describes from God himself. So the first divine being that we want to focus on is God himself. But then the second one is the angel. It says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. And this angel is described as holding the key to the bottomless pit, a great chain, and, and then will do something to a third divine being that is described in verse 2 as the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, which if you remember back in chapter 12, this is the same description that we saw in chapter 12 of Satan. 
So, so these are the divine beings. And what John is doing here is not presenting a chronological event in history. Notice the first three words in the ESV. It says, then I saw. And for 19 chapters, I've been proposing to you that when we see the phrase, then I saw, or after this, John is not trying to demonstrate a chronology. He's not trying to demonstrate historical order. He's simply alerting the reader to the fact that this is the next vision. This is the next scene. Chronology is not the point. And so the scene that he's presenting is drawing the reader to focus on the divine. Beloved, I propose to you that we would do well to heed this focus. I think we spend too little time in our lives focusing on the divine. In fact, I think the movie of Mount Everest actually illustrates this. It's fascinating for us as humans because we want to know about the individuals, don't we? We want to know about their backstories. Were they married? Did they have kids? How many times had they climbed? Uh, why was their re- what was their reason for, for climbing Mount Everest? Some of us might want to know about their equipment, might, might want to know about, about the, the technology that was involved. But, but as you're watching this movie, the ultimate force behind all of this is not the individual. It's not the tools and equipment. The ultimate force that impacted everything was the weather. No matter how many times they had climbed, no matter how great their equipment and resources were, no matter what they were back in the States as a career, what mattered most and the most powerful influence was the weather. And I think that illustrates well why John is taking these first three verses and not having us focus on how that impacts us or how we understand it. He's drawing our attention to the divine. And so much of our lives is focused on us. It's focused on the here and now. In fact, how do you actually interpret the news events that you watch online or you watch on TV? You're watching them with the lens of how do they impact us, aren't we? Most of the reasons we vote the way that we do are often the way it impacts us. And so often our focus on, in life is on ourselves and not on the divine. And yet the reality is no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how much education, no matter how powerful or educated we are, our lives can be impacted by one phone call. And so I think John is actually reminding us as Christians, before we even get into the thousand years, to make sure that we are spending more time focusing on the divine. But I think what's interesting is the opening phrase of the entire book of Revelation. In fact, would you flip back there to Revelation 1.1, because I think it actually helps us understand what John is unpacking. As you're turning there, Let me remind you that it's important for us not to first ask the question, what does this text mean to me? But instead, what did the original author mean to the original audience? 
So even when we start to look at a thousand years, when we start to look at binding Satan, when we start to look at a little while and being loosed and deceiving the nations and and what does it mean to have a first resurrection and a second death and all of those details that often divide us into systems, we should first ask the question, what is John doing? How is he developing his thought? How does the rest of scripture come to bear on that text before we start to put ourselves in the interpretive driver's seat? And I think Revelation 1.1 actually helps us. It says in verse 1, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Which there again draws our attention to the divine before it even gets to us. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we should ask the question, does Jesus say anything that might educate us and help us with the details that John provides? And I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. If you don't want to turn there, just... Please write it down and the team will put it up on the screen. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus provides a teaching with a a story or an analogy. He says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, How can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. And so while you're there, in Matthew 12, 29, would you underline the phrase, binds the strong man? The next passage that Jesus himself provides for us that I think helps us with Revelation 20 is found in John chapter 12, verse 31. As you're turning there, the context is that there was a loud voice that was heard by the crowd John tells us what it said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But the crowds think that an angel spoke. Jesus explains not necessarily the details as much as the purpose of the voice. And he says in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. But then listen to what Jesus says in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be Cast out. Would you underline that phrase, cast out? Jesus is speaking of the redemptive plan of God himself that was established before the foundation of the world, of which that first century audience was a participant but did not have the full light of the revelation of God's word. And he explains to them that Jesus' time on earth was the inauguration of the defeat of Satan and that Satan was being cast out. Now, if you arrive back in Revelation 20, I'll draw your attention to the same verbs that are found in this text. Revelation 20, verse 2 says that he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him. Same verb that we found in Matthew 12, 29. Then it says in verse 3 that he threw him into the pit. That is the same verb that is found in John 12, 31. And I think the reason why that's important is that that informs us as we arrive at Revelation 20 more than the Left Behind series. More than the thief in the night. More than tradition in denominations, the word of God interprets the word of God. And I think these are strong starting points to help us understand what John is teaching in these first three verses. But wait, 
there's more. If you look at verses 1 through 3, there are a lot of parallels to chapter 12. And Gregory Beale and the image up on the screen will help you with that. There are amazing parallels with the details that John is providing in Revelation 20 that he already has in Revelation 12. And I think the conclusion that we can draw here is that what John is doing is simply replaying what he described in Revelation 12. He's not taking a battle that takes place in chapter 19 and a second coming of Jesus and then now explaining a a thousand years or a symbolic thousand years that are going to be an earthly kingdom. He's actually just replaying what took place in chapter 12, which is this. It's the period of time from the resurrection of Christ until the eternal kingdom is set up here on earth that is described here as a thousand years. I think it's interesting that John chooses a very round number. He's chosen round numbers before. In fact, let me give you some of those passages. In chapter 11, verse 3, in chapter 12, verse 6, he described this period of time as 1,260 days. In chapter 11, verse 2, in chapter 13, verse 5, he described it as 42 months. In chapter 12, verse 14, he described it as time, times, and half a time. And I know there will be those of you who say, well, what about... Daniel 9. We'll get there when we get to the summary sermon. But I think what John is doing is using descriptions of time periods to communicate two things. Number one, God is in control. God is the one who is ordering down to the most minute detail, not just the events that take place, but their timing. The bookends. And I think he's also providing a second reality when he gives times. He's wanting to provide contrasts and teaching. And I think that's what he's doing here with a thousand years. And the contrast is actually found at the end of verse 3. After that, he must be released for a little while. We don't know how long the final battle is going to take place. The final battle that verses 7 through 10 describe the final battle that chapter 19, 17 through 21 describes, the final battle that chapter 16, verses 12 through 16 describe on replay, we don't know how long that battle will take. But what John is doing here is presenting a massive amount of time that it's impossible for us as human beings to fully wrap our brains around, and he throws out a thousand years, and then he's contrasting that not with another period of time, but with an open-ended period of time that is described as a short while to remind us that God is in control and to contrast and teach. And I think when we conclude this, this is another quote, Christ's ministry inaugurated a new era of redemptive history that has begun an unprecedented global advance of the gospel. I think that's the point of verses 1 through 3 and the tying in of Matthew 12, 29 and John 12, 31. Now, how do I conclude that? Well, there's a henna clause in these three verses. Henna being the Greek word that translates so that or purpose. What is the purpose for this symbolic description of Satan being bound It's so that, verse 3, he might not deceive the nations. I find this fascinating as you study the Bible, that you don't experience a global advance of the gospel until Christ comes on the scene. 
Throughout all of the Old Testament, the gospel was primarily focused on people groups in Israel. Satan was effective for generation after generation in deceiving the nations and the gospel not advancing to the end of the earth. But what Jesus says is that in order for Satan's house to be plundered, the strong man has to be bound. And then in chapter 12, verse 31 of John, it says that his rule is actually inaugurally defeated and he's being cast out, which Revelation 12 describes symbolically through the dragon being cast out of heaven. And I think what you see there, and then very quickly in Acts, is that the binding of Satan is that he can no longer deceive the nations at large for an extended period of time, described as a thousand years here, but being between the resurrection and Christ setting up his eternal kingdom. That's the thousand years we're living in that right now. And glory to God, the gospel is advancing, isn't it? And yes, there are tremendous persecutions that are taking place across the globe. Yes, there are persecutions that are happening in your workplaces and in your classrooms. But the gospel is still advancing globally. And I think what John is doing here is he's reminding us that God is in control. That Satan, while active, is limited And then in the day where maybe in our lifetime all hell breaks loose against the church, he wants us to simply remember it's not going to be three and a half years or seven years, 42 months. It's going to be a little while. Number two, let's look at the humans and what they are doing. Verse four is our familiar phrase, then I saw. This is not chronology. This is the next scene. This is the next vision. And what he sees are two groups of people. He spends the most time focusing on the first group. The first group is described as those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. Now, we immediately want to think that this group that he's describing are the martyrs of Christ. And certainly, I believe this group includes physical, literal martyrs, but it's not limited to that. And I think the rest of the description argues that, but so does the rest of Revelation. Remember in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. When the fifth seal was broken, a group of people are described as the martyrs and the saints of God under the altar who had been slain. And remember how John, Paul uses that same verb in Romans chapter 8 to describe what's happening to Christians every day. And so I think you take that You take Revelation 6 and you take the rest of the description. Look at what it says in verse 4. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. What it's saying is this group of people are those who have remained loyal through the patterns of their lives to Christ. And I think this group is every believer who has experienced the first resurrection. Do you see that in the text? First resurrection. And I believe what the first resurrection is, is the intermediate state. The intermediate state. Now, I'm going to take more time to explain what this is when we get to Revelation 21. But this is the period of time before the bodily resurrection that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15. And so when Adam died, when Abraham died, when Moses died, when David died, when the apostles died, 
when the saints of church history die, when your brothers and sisters in Christ die in our lifetime, they experience the first resurrection, which is being present in the presence of God, but not fully glorified. That will take place at the second resurrection, the bodily resurrection. This is the first group, but then there's a second group that says the rest of the dead. He doesn't spend a whole lot of time describing them, does he? Because he wants the reader to understand the second group is the opposite of the first group. Those who, by the patterns of their lives, displayed loyalty to the world system. They did not submit to King Jesus. I'm going to stick with the illustration of Everest. It was interesting to see what is required to climb Mount Everest. Not anybody can just pack a backpack and climb to the summit. You have to have a permit issued by the Nepalese government, which at a minimum requires you to have at least climbed to an altitude over 21,325 feet. The 14ers in the Rockies don't count. You have to have a medical professional sign off on your health. You have to buy rescue insurance. You have to hire a Sherpa. In fact, many of those that go to Mount Everest hire guides that require at least, at a minimum, $65,000. Not everyone can climb harvest, Everest. There are requirements. But here, the requirements are given for being in each group. The requirements are this. You've identified yourself and your life is depending on Jesus. In fact, this is the requirement on your permit. It'll be up on the screen. On what does your life depend? You want to be able to meet Jesus at the ultimate summit of spiritual Everest. Your permit must say that you are depending your life upon Christ. That you are devoted to his word. That the patterns of your life is that you have not identified with the world system. That you are not motivated ultimately by the world system. That the ultimate value that you place on life is not the accomplishments of what the world system offers. That the identity on your permit is Christ as a pattern, not as a snapshot. All of us can walk into this room and provide a pretty good snapshot, can't we? All of us can suck it up for a brief period of our lives and look pretty good. But the permit requirement is a pattern of life that is depending on the completed work of Christ. And when you die in this life, you enjoy the first resurrection. Verse 4 says that they came to life. Some believe that this is coming back for the millennial kingdom. And they would say the thrones in verse 4 are going to be thrones either suspended in the air or on the earth where Christians will judge those who live in the millennial kingdom. But, but I think, again, if we take the rest of Scripture to interpret this Scripture, I don't think that's what it's saying. In fact, let me highlight the activities that those described on these thrones are doing. Do you see what it says in the text? They're judging. Do you see it? They're reigning, and they're priests. Do you see that in the text? They're judging, they're reigning, and they're priests, which, by the way, they're on thrones. And if you look at how John has been using thrones in Revelation, other than three times where he describes the throne of the beasts or the throne of Satan, which he's speaking metaphorically, he's describing thrones from the context of being in heaven. 
So these are not thrones that are here on earth. These are thrones that are in the heavens. These are saints that have died on this earth that are awaiting their bodily resurrection. And they are judging, reigning, and priesting. <laughs> you know, the word judge is tied with prophet in Judges 4.4. 4. There's a woman named Deborah who is referred to as a prophetess, and it says that she was judging. In fact, when you look at the judges, they also functioned as prophets. When you see here in Revelation 20 that the saints that have experienced the first resurrection are reigning, that means that under the oversight of Christ and sharing in his victory, they are exercising princely or kingly activity. Then it says in verse 6 that they're exercising priestly activity. And this has always been the design for humans, hasn't it, since the Garden of Eden. Genesis 1.28, exercise dominion, kingly. Genesis 2.15, keep and watch over the garden, priestly. Teach others what, she was, what Adam was supposed to do with Eve, prophet. And these saints in the first resurrection are experiencing what God has designed for humans from the beginning of time. Just not completed until the bodily resurrection. I do think it's interesting that this says that they will be judging. And you can go to 1 Corinthians 6 and you can see that Paul says that we will judge angels and, and the nations. But I think he's speaking spiritually and not legally. And I think what he's describing here is that the Christians who have died in this life, the world said, you lost, you're dead. What John is reminding them and us is, no, 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 they came to life. They're actually living with Christ. And by their living, they're pronouncing judgment on the world system that the world system is wrong. And then it says that the rest of the dead will not come to life until the second death. Do you see that in the text? I think what this is describing is the eternal judgment that has not yet poured out on them. Something that they will experience at the end of this period of time when Christ comes back and pronounces final judgment. As I said, I'm going to unpack these concepts more when we get to chapter 21. But let me end this outline point with two definitions that I would encourage you to write down. Often in the Bible, when first is contrasted with second or old is contrasted with new, here's what it means. First means temporal, present, or old. First means temporal, present, or old. This is the contrast between the first Adam and the second Adam. This is the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. This will be the contrast between the old heaven and earth and the new heaven and earth, which is the second. Second means permanent future, and new. Second means permanent, future, and new. So what are the humans doing? The humans are living lives that will demonstrate whether they have met the requirements, and the requirements will be unpacked in just a moment. Third group I want us to focus on, and these last two we'll rapidly unpack. Number three, the armies. What are they doing? The armies. Verses 7 through 10 describe two armies. And it's always been two armies, hasn't it? 
I mean, from the fall in Genesis 3, there have always been two armies. This is what David is describing in Psalm 2. There's an army that assembles here in this world against King Jesus, against the anointed, against the Messiah. There's always been two armies. These armies have actually been described already in Revelation, back in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, and back in chapter 19, verses 17 through 21, which, by the way, look at the descriptions that John provides for those battles and for that assembling. It is similar, if not the same here. It's describing the entire earth. It's describing a coordinated effort to focus on Christ and the church. When it says here, the fortress of the people of God in the beloved city, it's not talking about a physical location or the physical city of Jerusalem. Just like chapter 11 is describing spiritually the church and the people of God. Now, how do I conclude that? Beyond what I've just explained, this phrase that you probably were wanting to know, what does it mean in verse 8? Do you see it? Gog and Magog. Oh, man, as an expositor, these are the kinds of things where I think, all right, pastor, tell me what it means. Oh, wait, I am the pastor. I think John is doing here what he's done for 19 chapters, and he's tying us back to the Old Testament. There's a passage from Ezekiel 37 to 48, that I think this phrase is drawing the reader's attention to. In fact, the team will put up on the screen a book written by Gregory Beale and the pages that are found in it. And if you want to go dig into this more, he does an amazing job actually walking through Ezekiel 38 or 37 through 48 and showing the parallels to what John is describing here to help us understand that in a Dimly lit room, Ezekiel is describing the same thing that John is describing in these verses in Revelation 20. Gog was a ruler in ancient times, and his territory was referred to as Magog. And the history of Israel tells us that he was especially aggressive against the people of God. And so if you were familiar with Jewish history in the Old Testament, Gog and Magog describe a fierce force that aggressively targets the people of God. And I think what John is doing here is something that the Everest websites and pamphlets don't do. As I've been doing this research on Everest, it's amazing to see how attainable climbing to the summit is for people like me. I mean, people just like you and me are just celebrating at the top in, in high-resolution photos. We can do that. I mean, the, the people are drinking coffee at the balcony. I mean, this looks like it is attainable. But all you have to do is do a little bit more research, and you realize that the path up to the summit is littered with frozen dead bodies. The 333 people, as far as we know, have died, including, listen to this, friends, 17 in 2023. That's not in the pamphlets. And see, I think the world system does not want you to see the reality of the two armies. It doesn't want you to see the, the power and the, the aggressiveness of the world system against Christ and his people. And John, here, just like he's been doing throughout the entire book of Revelation, is pulling back the curtain so that we see the dead bodies, so that we see the reality 
so that pursuing the world system, even though it's a pleasure island of sorts, is exposed for the reality that it is and that the leader of the world system is revealed to be powerful, and he is. But once again in this passage is a reminder that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. The armies, what are they doing? It's revealed in this passage once again. But then number four, the eternities are the last group. What are they doing? Verse 11, then I saw. Again, not chronology, not historical progression, just the next vision, the next scene. And there's a great white throne. If you follow these verses and do so with the lens of the rest of the book of Revelation, you see that John has already given us clues and he's using intentional descriptions to help us understand what he's communicating. In fact, the team will put this up on the screen. Verse 11, the earth and sky fled away. This is what John says in chapter 6, verse 14 with the seals. Verse 12, the dead, small and great. Verse chapter 19, he described the Eating of flesh, small and great. This is another replay. Verse 12, books are open. Books are presented in chapter 13, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 8. Verse 13, death and Hades were once again referred to back in the seals replay. Verse 14, the lake of fire referred to here as the second death in chapter 19, verse 20. Which, by the way, when I say an intermediate state, There's no crossing teams. That's what the Catholic religion believes. When you experience the first resurrection and you're in the presence of God, there's no potential for you to be in judgment. When you die and you experience the first death, not referred to as that here, but the temporal death and judgment that Jesus describes with the rich man and Lazarus, there's no crossing over to the kingdom. This is not purgatory. But this is the intermediate state, and the second death will be final. It will be the ultimate pouring out of the wrath of God, which is described as the lake of fire and the second death. Now, I'm looking out on a lot of faces. Some of you have perplexed looks on your faces. There might be one or two of you that look a little angry. My goal this morning is not to force you into landing where I land. My goal this morning is not presenting to you the answer with all questions answered. My goal this morning is to do two things. Number one, show you where I land and then clearly reveal how I got there with the hope that you use the tools that I've been using and wrestle for yourself. Don't throw up your hands and simply say, God's got this without wrestling. Don't throw up your hands and say, well, I follow this pastor or this author or I grew up in this denomination. The the, the benefit of the journey is the view from the top and the growing of the muscles in the process. And I think when you get to the top, you're blessed with something that the movie and the climbers of Everest don't get to experience. You see, when they get to the top, there is an amazing view. And you can look in a 360-degree fashion and see nothing taller than you. That's amazing. But in this Mount Everest, you come to the realization that the summit isn't chapter 20. 
The summit is actually 21 and 22. That is what is intended to loom over our study. That is what is intended to motivate us and impact us. And so what are the eternities doing? Well, it actually says here they're looking for the patterns of our lives, aren't they? That's what these books are described as, recording the the patterns of our lives. And the patterns of your lives will reveal on what your life depends. Now, the patterns of your lives don't earn the summit. The patterns of your lives tell you which permit you have. Will you live in the presence of God forever, or will you be part of the dead who experience the second death for eternity forever and ever and ever? Patterns of our lives, just like the patterns of Abraham, reveal our loyalties. In fact, would you write down Genesis 15, verse 6? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. Now, Abraham's life was not perfect, but the patterns of his lives revealed faith. In fact, Genesis 17 is a great example of that. Do you know that Genesis 17 and the instruction for circumcision was not ultimately about a medical surgery or an ethnic people? It was actually about an opportunity to demonstrate faith. And so what the eternities are doing is they're looking at the patterns of your lives and not trying to keep an account of your your works so that you can see which ones outweigh the others. It's demonstrating who are you loyal to? Whose mark do you have on your forehead and your wrist? Whose life are you depending on? Is it Christ or is it yourself? The answer to that question, beloved, will determine your eternity. And I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes and live in the tension and the weight of this statement. What's your permit? Where are you climbing? The entire book of Revelation has served us to equip us for the climb. It's trying to remind us of the trophy of the end. That everything this world offers, everything that the world system promises will satisfy, falls eternally short. And this mention of a thousand years is yet one last replay to further deepen our courage, deepen our conviction, to spur us on to conquer and endure so that one day, whether in the first resurrection or one day in the second, we will enjoy the victory that Christ has won for those who believe. Father, I thank you for this chapter. It is a colossal chapter. And I know that the answers that I've provided have not provided all the answers. There are still questions left, but that tension, I believe, is one of the purposes for John writing what he did. May may we live in this tension. May we have gained tools this morning to further be able to study not just the easy to understand sections of your word, but also the the deep and the, the high passages. Because in the effort and in the exercising of the tools, we are given the opportunity to learn more about Christ, to look more like him, and to live as kingdom citizens this side of eternity. Continue to accomplish this work, Holy Spirit, I pray, for the glory of Christ. Amen.